0: In the words of some guy from some musical, okay, so we're doing this. Welcome to the Divisive Albums Podcast, where we'll look at albums by bands that for whatever reason divided their fanbase or were otherwise controversial. I'm your host, MTI, a 35-year-old straight white dude from the US. And in this first real episode of the Divisive Albums Podcast, we're going to be looking at a divisive album by a band who are themselves pretty inherently divisive. Today, we're going to be focusing on an album by Dream Theater. Yes, Dream Theater. Dream Theater. If you're not familiar with Dream Theater, they are probably the first active prog metal band people think of nowadays. And before anyone comes at me naming Tool, I will point out that as I record this in September 2018, Tool have not released any new music since 2006. Whereas, since releasing their debut, 1989's When Dream and Day Unite, Dream Theater have pretty consistently been releasing new albums about every two to three years. As for their sound, I'm going to try and sum it up in three sentences that I think Dream Theater's biggest fans and their most dedicated haters alike will agree are accurate. Ready? Here we go. Sentence number one, the members of Dream Theater are all very, very good at playing their instruments. Sentence number two, the members of Dream Theater all know they are very, very good at playing their instruments. And sentence number three, the members of Dream Theater all want you to know that they are very, very good at playing their instruments. Suffice to say that Dream Theater are not a band you would ever peg for mainstream success. Now, in a different era, bands like, yes, Pink Floyd and Rush, who would all broadly be called progressive rock, found ways to sell albums, and lots of them, despite an aversion to creating radio-friendly singles. But that was back in the 70s. Dream Theater couldn't repeat that kind of success in the early 90s, right? Well, about that. In 1992, Dream Theater released their second album, Images and Words, and one of the singles off of this album was Pull Me Under, which is an eight-minute compression of Shakespeare's Hamlet told from the point of view of, uh, Hamlet. Now for the single, the song was shortened to about five minutes, and this shortened version got a music video. The video itself is frankly a rather low-budget affair. It alternates performance clips of the band with this weird footage that tells some kind of a story. What that story is, your guess is as good as mine. If you want to take a guess, you can find the video easily enough on YouTube nowadays. Either way, somehow that video became an MTV hit, and the end result was that Images and Words ended up certified gold by the RIAA for sales of half a million copies. Now, I specified MTV hit here for a reason. Traditionally in the U.S., a song is considered a hit when it reaches the top 40 of what is currently known as the Billboard Hot 100. Now, there are historical reasons for this, mainly relating to radio. The top 40 format in the U.S. basically was invented by a man named Todd Storrs, who is now called the father of top 40 radio. He basically looked around his local malt shops or whatever you had in the 1940s saw the various popular songs on the jukebox, and basically said to himself, what if I just played the Top 40 songs from these jukeboxes over and over? And thus originated Top 40 radio. In the US here, the late Casey Kasem is probably the most well-known Top 40 DJ. Meanwhile, over in England, the BBC actually uses 40 as its cutoff for its album and singles charts. The point of that little detour through chart history was to let you know that despite the fact that Dream Theater once titled a compilation Greatest Hit and 21 other pretty cool songs, they in the US are technically a no-hit wonder. Pull Me Under actually only made it to number 63 on the Hot Singles sales chart, which isn't even the main Hot 100, it's one of its component charts. Nonetheless, the MTV popularity and gold album for Images and Words would lead to tension between the band and their record label East-West Records. The label looked at Pull Me Under and basically said, hey, you guys did that once, you can do it again, right? And the band figured it was just a fluke, and they just wanted to keep doing what they did, which was write songs with a million notes a minute and a bunch of odd time signatures, and the longer those songs were, the better. Now, this tension was largely kept out of the actual music on the follow-up, 1994's Awake. The main manifestation there was that the album was rushed to release because East-West Records told Dream Theater, hey, uh, the sooner you get this album out, the sooner we put the money we expect to make on advance orders off of it into our financial projection, so, uh, hurry up and get that done. Thanks. After that, the band released a so-called EP, 1995's A Change of Seasons, which was their first work to feature their new keyboardist, Derek Sherinian. Now, this is an audio podcast, so you didn't see me making air quotes around EP there, but I definitely did for reasons we'll come back to. The tension between East West and Dream Theater really came to a head during the recording of their fourth full studio album and the subject of today's podcast, Falling into Infinity, released in 1997. East West regarded Awake as a commercial failure, and in the meantime Dream Theater's main champion at East-West had been fired and the replacement wanted shorter more radio-friendly songs from Dream Theater but did they get that and did the end result get Dream Theater the mainstream success East-West wanted for them well let's take a listen The album opens with New Millennium which uh takes a while to get going When I say a while, I mean those are the first vocals in the song and I skipped the first minute and 50 seconds of it. Dream Theater are certainly a band that take the scenic route to get to wherever they're going musically. Later on in the song we get this bit of little instrumental proggishness. Here's a brief music theory lesson for you. The overwhelming majority of pop songs in the US are in a time signature known as 4-4, or 4 beats per measure. Sometimes this is called just being in four. Try counting along with the drums to your favorite pop hit and you'll probably hear it. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, like that. This part of the song I just played is not in four. Specifically it's in 15. By the way, we're over five minutes into this song, and we've got about another three minutes to go before we reach the end of it. In fact, taking a look at the track listing for this album as a whole, basically all the songs are, well, they're not short. If I look at the files I ripped onto my computer from the CD, I'm old fashioned that way, I have this on CD, of the 11 songs on the album, only two of them are shorter than five minutes, and of those two, one of them barely squeaks under, clocking in at 4 minutes 58 seconds. Elsewhere on the CD, you have 5.5 minutes, 6 minutes, 12 minutes, 6 minutes, 5.5 minutes, and closing out a 13 minute song in three parts. This album as a whole basically maxes out the capacity of one CD. It's a little bit over 78 minutes long. Now, Todd in the Shadows, who I'm actually a fan of and whom you should check out, would probably pan this album for what he would call interminable crushing length. But I like prog rock, I'm more optimistic in general. And I take a different tack to this. I like to think of this as Dream Theater in the CD era being determined to give you value in Cave Bahamut. Wait, what? Sorry, I uh, I meant uh, giving you value for your dollar. Either way, though, you're probably thinking, if this is Dream Theater being radio-friendly, what do they do without record label influence? Truthfully, just looking at the track and album length, you would never know about any record label influence on this album. It follows the Dream Theater's standard operating procedure fairly closely. Their previous full album, Awake, was about 75 minutes long, and remember that EP I air-quoted earlier? It had one new studio song, the title track, A Change of Seasons, and some live covers and medleys of songs that the band liked. It was also 57 minutes long, which is longer than many bands' proper LPs. Heck, it's longer than Dream Theater's first two albums. But anyway, back to Falling Into Infinity. Former Dream Theater drummer Mike Portnoy noted at the time that he and the band were fighting for some of the longer, more progressive songs to be put on the album, but they didn't totally get away scot free in that regard. East West really wanted a hit for this album, and they brought in Desmond Child to try to help Dream Theater get one. Yes, that Desmond Child, the hitmaker of the 80s and 90s. Just some of his co writing credits include Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, Aerosmith's Crazy, Alice Cooper's Poison. Living La Vida Loca by Ricky Martin. The list goes on and on. He also gets co-writing credit on this song, You Not Me. Now I'm going to skip ahead to the second chorus here, and I want you to pay attention to the drums. you, but what I hear is Mike Portnoy openly revolting against what he perceives as the more mainstream direction of this song. Listen to his determination to throw in some kind of drum fill or drum ornamentation, basically every other measure. Mike Portnoy wants you to know that he is very very good at drums and Desmond Child will not distract him from making sure that mission is accomplished. Now yes, I'm being snarky here, but the truth is I actually like this song a lot. To the point where I don't understand why it wasn't chosen as the lead-off single for this album. I mean, forced or not, they are going for a more mainstream audience, so they may as well commit to it. This is not only the only song on Falling Into Infinity where Desmond Child has an explicit co-writing credit, it's the only song in the entire Dream Theater catalog not counting covers where anyone outside the band has a co-writing credit. So why they didn't just go all in with the trying to reach a mainstream audience is beyond me. And remember how I mentioned that there were only two songs on the album that are under five minutes? This was one of them. But, for whatever reason, You Not Me was not chosen as the lead single. Neither was this next song, although I think it's another viable candidate. This one is called Burning My Soul, and this section I'm about to play actually reminds me a bit of the pre-chorus to Pull Me Under. So when I say this reminds me of Pull Me Under, what I mean is it's about the same tempo, and Mike Portnoy's double bass kind of drives this song along. And as a bonus for hardcore prog heads, the song actually goes into a couple of odd time signatures near the end, primarily 7-4 in the third verse. Now, I'm not a record label executive, but like I said before, all these factors mean I think this would have been another solid choice for a single, particularly with the odd time signatures even keeping the hardcore Dream Theater fans happy. But alas, the record industry works in mysterious ways, and that also was not chosen as the single. No, this song here was what they went with instead Once the stone you're crawling under is That was Hollow Years, and I mean, it's a pretty enough song, I guess. The verses focus on a man leaving his family, and separately a girl who it is implied as someone's love just turning around and walking away from the relationship for good. And the chorus describes the feeling of going through loss and realizing you have basically wasted your time, since the relationships and the time you invested into them are gone and they're not coming back but this is kind of a strange choice for the lead single. I mean, it's not terrible lengthwise, it's one of the five and a half minute songs I mentioned earlier. And Dream Theater had written pretty songs prior to this, but those were mostly the work of former keyboardist Kevin Moore, who left during the recording of Awake. Regardless, it's really not what they're known for. If Pull Me Under was a fluke hit, this really would have been a fluke hit if it had actually worked. Heck, even this, the 12 minute long Lines in the Sand, would have been a better choice for a single in my opinion. Tragic Now, obviously, 12 minutes is a touch long for a single. But Dream Theater could have done what Yes would sometimes do in the early 70s, and just take out a three-minute chunk of the song for single consumption. On the other hand, the lyrics here might have been a turnoff. There's a lot of religious imagery, and vocally you've got Doug Pinnock from King's X kind of gospeling it up there in that chorus. So, yeah, I'm not a record executive, and thinking about it some more, I probably shouldn't be. You know who else shouldn't have been record executives? Whoever was working at East-West Records circa Falling Into Infinity. Going back to Hollow Years for a moment, East-West wanted a video for their lead single, which, fair enough, on its own. But after someone spent $100,000 on that video, and I've read that it was actually the band's money, not the labels, East-West decided not to do anything with it, it only showed up on Dream Theater's YouTube page ten plus years after the fact. Suffice to say that this did not help band label relations at the time. Even before this though, it's fair to say that Mike Portnoy wasn't happy at this point. Take a listen to some of these lyrics from Just Let Me Breathe. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with Mike Portnoy DESTROYING MTV by referring to them as MTV, And by destroying, I mean he was five years late to the game. Nickelodeon once referred to MTV as MTV on their early 90s show Roundhouse, and I will point out that, by the way, Nickelodeon and MTV are both owned by the same company. So, nice job being late to the game there, Mike. So, now that we've sampled most of the notable parts of this album, how did it actually do in the market? It would be unfair to say it tanked, because Dream Theater's most popular album to this point was only gold, so in other words there really wasn't that far for them to fall. It is fair to say, however, that it failed to live up to the label's expectations and didn't win any new fans for Dream Theater, and their existing fan base kinda of panned it at the time because they were blatantly trying to go commercial. But I have some issues with this. Number one, I actually like most of the album, particularly New Millennium, Lines in the Sand, and Even You Not Me, which I understand is kind of a contrarian opinion. Secondly, even taking into account that selling out is not a thing anymore since nobody actually makes money in music, trying to go more mainstream is not inherently a bad thing. Yes, Genesis, Rush, all those bands hit their popularity peak after they dialed down some of the more proggy elements of their music and Rush actually released their two best albums, in my opinion, immediately after doing so. Having said that, some bands just aren't made for the mainstream, they aren't made to make mainstream music, and Dream Theater are one of those bands. In part, I think the album failed because it didn't go far enough into more concise, more palatable songwriting. I mean, you have a 12-minute song, a 13-minute song, you open the album with a roughly 8.5-minute song. The band and the label were pretty clearly of two minds making this album. But the album's commercial failure did have a few silver linings. For one, East-West, recognizing that Dream Theater had tried it the label's way and it didn't work, basically left them alone and gave them complete creative control after this. For another, the original plan for this album was for it to be a double album before the record label put the kibosh on that for budget reasons. As a result of this, one of the songs left off of Falling Into Infinity was a 21-minute song called Metropolis Part 2, a follow-up to Images and Words' Metropolis Part 1. Dream Theater took this piece, expanded it into an entire album, and in 1999 released it managing to keep the concept a secret right up to its release, which is kind of impossible to think of today. Now, for me personally, Metropolis Part 2 was my personal entry point into the band, after I had asked for and not received any Dream Theater albums for Christmas the previous year or two. I sometimes wonder how my Dream Theater fandom would have turned out had I actually gotten Falling Into Infinity first, Particularly as Metropolis Part 2 is generally considered one of their best albums, meanwhile Falling Into Infinity is thought of as one of their worst. As for Dream Theater, things turned out okay for them. Particularly in the late 2000s when you had games like Rock Band and Guitar Hero at their peak, Dream Theater kind of received a new wave of popularity because their songs would typically end up in those games as part of the Impossible tier. And their last several albums have actually been in the top 10 of the Billboard 200. Yet, 26 years after it was released, Images and Words is Dream Theater's only RIAA-certified album, although they have a couple Platinum-certified video releases, but the sales thresholds for those are much lower than for albums. But back to Falling Into Infinity, as I said, I do like a lot of this album, particularly the heavier parts. I think if it had been released by some new rock band that had some progressive elements, it would have been a lot better received. But as it was, it was released by Dream Theater, who were a band that really had no interest in appeasing their record label, radio stations, or MTV, and that kinda killed it. Thanks for listening to the Device of Albums podcast. If you'd like to find me on social media, I am on Twitter at MDI.com. That's MTI D-O-T-C-O-M. I also have a website at empti.com. And I am also on Discord, and I will post the link to the Discord in the show notes.